I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And Andrew Allard. So yes, there is no James today, which is very sad, but we are delighted to be joined by Andrew. Uh, Welcome to the show, Andrew. Do you want to let the listeners know a little bit more about you and what we're going to be discussing on today's show? Um, Well, if you know me at all, and there's no reason why you should, uh, I script edit TV shows. I script edit Red Dwarf and The IT Crowd and Count Arthur and various other comedy things. Um, But the reason I'm here probably is because I do tweet notes on Twitter, which more often than not these days means I'm doing notes about superhero movies. And you've been referenced probably multiple times in the past on this podcast. I certainly use your tweet notes for research regularly. I'm always flattered to be quoted. There's always (laughs) a little punch punch the air when you hear the name mentioned. (laughs) Um, Although I, I've got to be honest, I like deliberately avoided seeing whether you'd done Kingsman ones this week because didn't ah, want to ruin the surprise. Well, this is going to be interesting for you. So, Andrew, you, um, we, you know, we discussed what kind of, you know, maybe a few films that we might discuss. Why was Kingsman one of the ones that leapt to mind for you? Well, I'm I'm a ridiculously pathetically overt James Bond fan. So when Kingsman mm-hmm. came out, I was kind of primed because I'm not I'm not one of those Bond fans that doesn't like my franchise being lampooned. Like I always, I always really enjoyed um even the you know like the Austin Powerses and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so I was and also I got on very well with with Kickass. I did really like X-Men First Class, so I thought I was in a very safe zone with Kingsman, and then I didn't get on with it quite as well as I thought I would, <laughs> which which usually means there's something to talk about. But yes, yeah, so this podcast is going to be focused on Matthew Vaughan's 2015 film, Kingsman. Uh, before that, we'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb to explain a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And Seb, this week... A couple of episodes into watching Preacher on Amazon Prime over here, um, AMC for our listeners stateside, and I hear this is a prequel and kind of an adaptation. So 
how is that possible? What am I watching if I'm not watching a direct adaptation of the first volume of the comic? Um, yeah, so the funny thing about this is I, I did an interview with uh, Dominic Cooper for Den of Geek. Um, it was actually after episode one had aired and in that gap before episode two did. I hadn't actually seen episode one yet, but because I'd read the, the script a while ago, I, you know, I had enough of a sense of what was going on with it. And the interesting thing in that interview was I had to cut the bit where Dominic Cooper accidentally directly spoiled exactly what the final scene of season one of the show is uh, because he was talking about the fact that the show is basically a prequel to the comic um, and he referenced a specific scene very early in the comic that they're going to end this first season on as far as this season kind of working as a prequel goes obviously they have made some pretty significant changes um, to the, the background of the characters and kind of where you find them when the show starts um, because in the, 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 the premise and the setup of the comic without giving too much away is that um, you meet Jesse Custer right at the start of the... Well, actually, in the kind of opening scene of the comic, you meet Jesse and Tulip and Cassidy in a diner, and then it flashes back to what's happened to them in the last few days. Um, so it starts with Jesse in the town of Anvil, where he's the, the town preacher. But the town of Anvil is, is very much a footnote to um, the comic generally. Like, um, you know, the town's population are all dead by about four or five pages in to the whole thing. Like when 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 Genesis, which is the name, I don't know if they've, they probably haven't named it in the show yet, but Genesis is the name of the entity that that possesses Jesse and gives him the word of God and stuff, and the thing that the uh, the two angels are trying to uh, track down and, and recapture. I see what they did there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when he gets imbued with Genesis, uh, the first thing that happens is the entire congregation of the church gets wiped out, and and Jesse is then found on the side of the road by Tulip and Cassidy who have met up um, basically um, Cassidy is basically giving Tulip a lift like they don't know each other otherwise and Tulip stumbles across Jesse and is like hey that's my ex-boyfriend that's a bit weird and then stuff happens from there what the tv show is doing is um having various characters meet earlier and establishing the town of anvil much more strongly whether they're actually going to wipe out the population of the town at the end of the season i don't know because i really don't know what direction the show is going to go in but what they have done is well there's two ways that they've given themselves um you know, material from the comic to work with, even though the whole show is basically set before the comic. Um, the first way is they're using backstory because there's a lot of flashback backstory in the comic. So they're just pulling some of that in early. Um, and the other thing they're doing actually is bringing some characters forward in the narrative. So, I mean, for example, you know, they've, they've put Cassidy in Anvil and that's how he meets Jesse. Um, and while I am on this, I know you didn't ask me to talk about what the show's like, but man, Joe Gilgan is the best thing about that show by a country mile because like every moment that he is Cassidy, he's just perfect and I just want more of that character and I want them to do his backstory um, but things like um, Queen Cannon which is uh, Jackie Earl Haley's character um, is from like there's a very specific story arc where due to various reasons characters are separated and Jesse basically spends an entire volume's worth living in this small town called Salvation and Queen Cannon is there but in the um, comic they've brought him forwards and they've added additional characters so I think I, it seems to me that what they're building up to, and this is something that Dominic Cooper said in the interview, is you know the the premise of the comic is very much a road movie, and it's a road movie through lots of different genres as well. 
Um, the show seems to be trying to set up its characters in this first season and it will then presumably take them out on the road and get them involved in the big massive conspiracy story that is the the true story of the comic um by the end of the season and i think to i mean i'm i'm three episodes in and at the moment um i I said this on twitter but i feel a little bit when are they going to get to the fireworks factory about the plot because the plot is just not moving on and i think in order to try and say those of us who know the comic and know how much story there is to come i think by dropping these little hints like the cowboy and the shady uh bald man in a hat from the start of episode three who is i wasn't expecting to i mean they haven't said who that character is but it's very obvious and i wasn't expecting to see that character in this season at all so little bits like that are enough to give hope that that this is preacher and that this is the preacher that we know and love Okay, uh, well, we'll move on now to this week's comic book, movie, and TV news. Um, we'll flip over to Justice League. And last week, in a really unprecedented move for a movie of this size, movie journalists were invited out to the Justice League cast, uh, to the Justice League set over here in London. They were shown scenes shooting. They were given access to the previs stuff and artwork and were quite candidly spoken to about some of the details of the film. They got to interview the cast. They got to speak to um, Zack Snyder, um, Deborah Snyder, loads of people involved with the film. And a lot of the people who were invited were movie bloggers who had been quite openly critical of DC and Warner Brothers and the way they handled Batman v Superman um, and also the kind of bloggers and who were kind of reporting on behind the scenes uh, let's say a lacking of confidence from Warner Brothers in the direction that the superhero movies were taking and then all of this information was able to be published just days after still kind of two years out from the release of this film which is just you know normally set visit kind of information comes out two or three months before the film and a lot of a lot of details are embargoed and you can't spoil this and you can't spoil that but these journalists were able to just say we saw this scene being shot this is what this character said this is what this character's costume looked like and i just wonder you know what can can we read anything into this other than just warner brothers are trying to get ahead of the negative press and try and swing it in a different direction i read devin farachi's piece and um, the part where Deborah and Zack Snyder, and I think it was Deborah who said it, they kind of sat down and said, well, we learned this lesson from Batman v Superman, <laughs> which is that people don't like to see their superheroes deconstructed. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, you didn't do that. And secondly, that wasn't anyone's problem with it. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. just... <laughs> They've been terrible the whole way through this franchise when it comes to revisionist history, though, haven't they? They've re- yeah, they've, you completely. Know, said, oh, we were doing this. No, you weren't. Yeah, you did. And- <laughs> you didn't do that very well. You know, I, I would love to see a great film that properly deconstructed the very idea of Superman and Batman, but Batman v Superman was not it. When they, I think when, when the Snyders say deconstructed, um, do they just mean 
violently fighting. Or may- maybe they mean it very, very literally, that the characters <laughs> were constructed and bit by bit they pulled all the relevant parts out of them. <laughs> because that is what happens over the course of Man of Steel, right? He starts yeah. off by saving people and by the end of the movie he's decided he's, not to bother doing them. that so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, I think my only other thing before I, um, you know, I can sort of hand over to Andrew, but um, I... I'm kind of frustrated actually to read these reports of them saying oh you know we, we want to lighten the tone and we want to do it as a proper superhero movie and we think we understand what people want now and they've given it this logo which my, my the key thing I took away from the logo was it looks comic-y and it's not metal and it's like I'm so fed up of metal superhero movie logos and you know Spider-Man Homecoming being another good example um, I'm so frustrated that they've said all of this after they've taken Superman out of the equation it's like all of the stuff that they're saying that they're going to do now is exactly the approach they should have taken to Superman and all it says to me all along you know Zack Snyder's thing about why Superman I mean Superman is going to obviously going to be in the movie in some yeah. way but he's notably absent from all of those reports and Zack uh, Snyder said something along the lines of um, uh, you know um, I didn't want the, the film to just be um, Superman and Batman putting the Justice League together because if it's Superman and Batman everyone would say yes I think it's a far more interesting story if it's Batman trying to do this Seven Samurai thing and it's well there you go there's the answer that is what I've been saying ever since Man of Steel Zack Snyder wants to make Batman movies and he has used Superman as his, and destroyed Superman as his way into making the Batman well, movies that he wants to make and me, that's what we, frustrates me <laughs> let me before we bring Andrew in drop some more details that I read basically that Superman was in a lot of the concept art that the uh, journalists were given access to, that no one at any point said that Superman wasn't in the movie, that they weren't trying to hide his involvement. Uh, Henry Cavill is on the call sheets. He's just not there yet. So Mm. Superman will be back in this movie at some point. And the other details that Zack Snyder discussed was, and again, I think this is a case of a bit of revisionist history, is that they needed Superman to go through all that other stuff so that when he comes back, he can be kind of the Superman that everyone knows and loves and can be the the version of the comic book character that everyone but this, wants th- to see. Oh, this comes back to this, you know, oh, you know, we can't do him that way till we've put him through all of this. If this is what they said yeah. about Man of Steel, he has to be the learning... No, just write him as Superman. <laughs> you're, the, you're the people making the film. Just put the actual Superman but, in so, but, from the start. But having said all that, those two films are in the past. That's what they are supposedly doing, is bringing into this movie, whenever he shows up, a Superman who is more like the Superman we want to see. The journalists were reporting on a scene where Cyborg and Flash are joking and palling around, and that they're kind of like, they've got a really great chemistry, and that um, Wonder Woman um, lets out a big grin at the end of a scene, and everyone's like, oh, is this the first smile in a DC, in this DCEU? And Andrew, d- does that sound any more encouraging to you, or does it just do to you what it does to Seb, which is to frustrate you more about the two movies we've already seen? I thought this was a real coup. I thought this was an incredibly smart piece of marketing from a, uh, a group that have yet to had yet to impress me up until that point. Um, I really, I really do think that you've got to head off this kind of. We're stuck with this universe as it currently is. They're they're stuck with it too. They know that people didn't completely get along with it. They know that they've ploughed a lot of future plans into all of this thing. They have to do a course correction. It is an incredibly reactionary franchise now. 
But for all of that, you know what? It's not the first smile, because the first smile is Wonder Woman's at the end of Batman v Superman. <laughs> she she turns up and it's the it's the it's one of the few bits I genuinely love in that movie is that she turns up, she says, Oh, hang on, people are in trouble. I'd better save them and help. She lands, she gets in the yeah. fight, and then she lo- she smiles at the idea of having a combatant worthy of her metal. These are all things that we'd kind of been wishing that Superman had been doing during the course <laughs> of the rest of the movie. So if he's changed, it's because he turned and looked at Wonder Woman during the course of the fight and went, oh, like that! <laughs> Maybe Superman will get a crotch shot all of his own. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I mean, just in reading the stuff, I mean, of course they're making all the right kinds of noises, and... It is interesting to watch them go, hey, we're not worried about spoilers. Well, but look what's being spoiled. You've got the bat signal and the team getting together. Yeah. It's, these were the things we were kind of expecting the movie to do anyway. It's fun. But what I, what I did find interesting was that Barry Allen scene. Now, I'm not a Flash guy at all, but this, this scene that got transcribed of, of Bruce Wayne approaching him in his apartment to, to bring him into the Justice League, where it's gag, 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 gag. Oh, I see you've got a costume there. Oh, I'm not, I'm not definitely not Spider-Man. I mean the Flash. It's so close to the Civil War scene with Spider-Man. <laughs> it's, like they, it it's, it's like they sat and watched it and went, well, what if our millionaire guy turned up at the guy's flat and found his costume? <laughs> Well, I mean, and that was that was the common refrain from these journalists as well. It was like, DC is making a Marvel movie. Yeah, well, we'll see. I'm not sure Zack Snyder's capable of that. No, me either. I mean, there's clearly an intent. Look, I mean, you only have to look at the writing of that. It is clearly intended to make the scene fun while you're actually in the scene, which is something that not often did the last two Supermans really manage. No. No. So I, you you can you can smell clear intent. Snyder's never been great with a screenplay. He's never been good with dialogue. So it looks like yeah, let the producers run the script. That mm. might help. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like what we're going to get is literally what this this set of backstage stuff has shown us, which is they will get together one at a time, quip a lot, and then hit something. <laughs> it's it's not made me suddenly go. Oh my god, they have such a great concept for this mm. movie. Someone's no. got a story they want to tell. Although I think you're right in terms of in terms of trying to turn around the kinds of conversations that are being had about this movie, turning around the kind of tone in which the people who are reporting on the movie online are going to speak about it. It seems to me like a smart move. It makes me think, huh? Well. At least it's not going to be another Batman v Superman. I don't particularly know what it what it is going to be yet, but some slightly encouraging noises, and maybe there are some more voices than just Zack Snyder's being put into this film. And for me, that that can only be a good thing. I did find it hilarious that all of these journalists had been contacted by um, Zack Snyder's publicist directly and flying back to London to visit the set. And I was like, wasn't it Disney that paid off all the critics? (laughs) (laughs) And obviously this isn't what's happened. None of... I'm sure... It's a set visit, yeah. Also, where where was our invitation? We were critical of Batman v Superman and we wouldn't have even had to fly to London. (laughs) 
Um, I do, there is just, there is actually on on that note, there is kind of one other point about this that I find quite interesting, which is that in the immediate aftermath of the Batman v Superman reviews, but before the scale of the mediocrity of the box office became apparent, um, and I say mediocrity because it wasn't a flop, but it also wasn't a hit. You know, it, it made money, but it just didn't make enough of it. Um, I thought Zack Snyder's line was that the critics didn't matter and it was about what the fans thought. And then all of a sudden, you've got this concerted effort to get the critics on side. Well, the critics are fans is the yeah. thing that he mm. fatally forgets in that exactly. kind of statement. But, uh, but I do also think, I mean, this feels... And I could be wrong because I you know, don't know who is kind of directly responsible for this, but I do wonder how much of this is... is DC and Warners and how much of it is Snyder and if, if 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 the Snyders are having to put a face on it of we are now taking this stuff on board where they weren't previously or if they have genuinely had a turnaround of opinion and are taking this stuff on board it's it's hard to know exactly where this has come from if, it, if it's come from above them or if it has come from them directly. There is a thing when you look at Zack Snyder's movies it took me a long time to kind of find what it was that joined them up, apart from, you know, just a kind of aesthetic where the writing's not great, the storytelling's not wonderful, but he loves moments and he loves the visuals. But that's not an ethos, you know, that's very surface. And then, of course, they they, they announced he wanted to do this Anne Rand <laughs> adaptation. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden I realised that's the problem with Watchmen. The thing about mm. his movie version of Watchmen is he doesn't believe they should function as a group. And he also thinks Rorschach is the hero. But if, if there's a real sadness to the comic, and I think there is, of, oh my God, isn't it a shame the Minutemen can't function? That's, that's so much about what's wrong with people and the world. And Zack Snyder's thing is, I mean, you're all awesome separately. I don't get kind of why you want to be in a room together. And and now I feel like that sort of informed all of his movies. It certainly informs the third act of Batman v Superman, where, I mean, sure, we'll keep fighting this guy, but we're not going to talk to each other. <laughs> God, Zack Snyder's going to direct the uplifting version of Brexit, the movie, isn't he? <laughs> Sorry, you just made me spit out my water. <laughs> God, that's computer yeah. damage. Well, we, we will all sob. <sighs> but uh, I think that brings our new section to an end because we have we have taught Spider-Man Homecoming and Justice League to death. We'll take a, a small gap now while we listen to the trailer for Kingsman, The Secret Service, and we will be back with our discussion of that film. We are an independent international intelligence agency operating at the highest level of discretion. That was the headline the day after I defused a dirty bomb in Paris. Front page news on all these occasions was nonsense. It's the nature of Kingsman that our achievements remain secret. How deep does this thing go? Deep enough. Being a Kingsman has nothing to do with the circumstances of one's birth. If you're prepared to adapt and learn, you can transform. That is sick. Oh, yes. Very, very nice. I'm offering you the opportunity to become a Kingsman. Interested? You think I've got anything to lose? Oh, there's a lot to lose. I guarantee it. Valentine's a threat which affects us all. Mankind is a virus. Mass genocide? I like it. You are completely crazy. Do I look like I get Assemble the Kingsman. Yeah. 
What is this to electrocute you? Don't be ridiculous. It's a hand grenade. Shut up. It's a bit much, isn't it? Begin countdown. Needed to let off a little steam. Is that that name? Uh uh. This is mine. What if I save the world? Will you give me a kiss? I'll give you more than just a kiss. I'll be right back. Okay, so that was the trailer for Kingsman, The Secret Service. Um, This was obviously a film that came out last year. Um, We didn't cover it then, because we tend to, I think, with our new releases, mostly stick to the high-profile stuff, because it's a lot more difficult for us all to see a movie... And, you know, that's in cinemas and then convene and record a podcast for when it's out than it is to just sit down and watch one that's on DVD. So we tend to stick to the bigger stuff, but hopefully this shows a, a little statement of intent that we, we do try, we, we are going to try and get to all of it. And so Kingsman came out last year, it was directed by Matthew Vaughan, uh, based on a Mark Miller comic. And Seb, just before we start, do you want to explain why we almost didn't record this episode <laughs> this week? Uh, yeah, this is a this is a classic case of separating the art from the artist um, because, well, I mean, Mark Miller generally there are ways in which Mark Miller comes off okay and ways in which he doesn't. It's generally not been a problem before. Um, you know, we've we've already done uh, Kick Ass on uh, this um, podcast, and that's a film and a comic that I enjoy. The reason why I didn't really want to do this this week is I didn't want to sit here and talk about in any way enjoying something by Mark Miller like two days after he had after the um, the referendum result in which he had been a very vocal supporter of the Leave campaign. Um, also recently learned that Mark Miller's a Freemason, which is quite <laughs> interesting. Um, but um, yeah, so so man of the people, Mark Miller there. Um, so I just didn't really feel in the mood to say anything positive about him. And at that point, I had read the comic but not seen the film yet, and so I wasn't. Re- I didn't really feel like going and watching the film, to be honest. Um, but we, you know, we we had a chat about it, and we decided to press on ahead and. Um, so yes we are so I I think we just kind of want to get this out the way now rather than just kind of constantly grumbling about Mark Miller (laughs) let's just take it as read that we are completely separating this from the person in the sense of Mark Miller as a person let's just not bring it up for the rest of the podcast because it will stop us all getting annoyed yeah there's also a very British film with class issues at its heart as well Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the three podcasters here who are all uh, bleeding heart liberals who are thoroughly <laughs> yeah. depressed about the state of our country in the wake of a referendum. And, um, yeah, it's been a tough couple of days. We're literally recording this, like, less than 48 hours after that and that yeah. news broke. So, yeah, it's been... It's been um, Possibly the most miserable 48 hours I've spent in Britain. (laughs) In the divided kingdom, as we now call it. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, we've got that out of the way. And now we can can get down to discussing Kingsman, 
on its own merits. And Andrew, this was this was kind of your suggestion of something to cover on the podcast. So I wonder, should we just start off? What do you think of this as a movie? Are you pro it? Are you anti it? Because it really split critics and audiences when it debuted in cinemas last year. I, it did, it did. Like I said, I was very, very, very excited about the movie coming out. I was really keen on it. And if we want to put everything that happened subsequently down to the sheer disappointment of too much anticipation, then I'm perfectly happy to do that. But it's not very exciting as a film, as an action movie. I'm not thrilled by it. But you go, ah, oh, yeah, but it's lampooning. So, okay, is it funny enough? It's definitely not funny enough. It has funny things and it has actually moments, but there's I don't think it hit any of the things that it was trying to hit well enough. And that just I was just left kind of slightly bereft by it. And then you start looking at the kind of internal politics of the movie um, and whether it's satirising them or being them, which is something I imagine we'll get to. Um, either way, I was I was just left kind of inconsolably miserable. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I I, remember, I saw this in cinemas as well, and I, yeah, I, I, afterwards I couldn't quite tell what I'd made of it. I spent an awful, a awful long time in the cinema, kind of. I couldn't get my head around it. It just it like it. I, there was. I feel like what you're saying uh, strikes a chord for me in that nothing, no real element of what the film's going for, what it's trying to do, for me. Fails. Not, not, none of it doesn't work, but none of it, none of it really all clicks. And you're right; no particular element of the film is great. So it doesn't, it doesn't come off as like a terrible Bond pastiche, mm-hmm. but it also doesn't come off as kind of like a really clever take on that either. Yeah. And it's kind of rags to riches, my fair lady story. It's there, it's executed, but it doesn't feel like a particularly fresh take on that. And, yeah, you're right, the action is never bad, it's never boring, but it's not, it's not exciting, uh, sorry, I take, I take back the bit that it's never bad, I think there is one particular moment which is bad, um, but, the, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fail in any of those areas, it just doesn't always pop for me, and actually, I think on a rewatch, I might have been the opposite of you, that the first time I think I got by enjoying elements of the film a lot on kind of the sheer bravado of the movie the sheer Mm -hmm. kind of like Matthew Vaughan is a supremely confident filmmaker he makes so many deliberate choices and is quite shocking often and the first time I saw this film certain elements and obviously uh, as always we're spoiling this film from the very start Um, so like the heads exploding like the gag at the end of the film like Samuel L. Jackson's lisp, like some of the particularly violent moments of the film, I was kind of like, they're doing that? Wow, okay. But yeah, that that kind of dulls on a rewatch. So I guess I'm I'm not quite as down on it as you, I don't think. Oh, Uh, very few people could be this far down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Seb, whatever I'm thinking, so this was for you the first time you've seen the film. Yeah, I mean, I've I've come kind of completely new to um, to all of this because I actually I only read the comic for the first time recently in preparation for the podcast as well. I mean, I I will I will talk about the comic a bit more shortly, but um, I was surprised going into the comic. Well, I was rather I was surprised coming out of the comic that I actually quite enjoyed the comic for what it is. 
Um, I still wasn't sure if I would get on with the movie, but again, I am someone who really loved the first Kick-Ass film, really loved um, First Class. I do think that generally uh, Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughan have a good track record for um, raising thing raising things above their source material, as I, as I said that Kick-Ass did, and you know Stardust, which is based on better source material, but is Stardust the film is still better than Stardust the book because it's one of Gaiman's weaker books. Um, so I was, you know, I was expecting this to be pretty good fun, and, and actually, um, my parents are quite big fans of this film. I think they've seen it a couple of times, and they really quite enjoyed it. Um, so again, you know, they had said, "Oh yeah, Kingsman, that's that's good fun," um, and I I thought it was quite good fun. I, I mean, I don't think I'd be in a rush to rewatch it or anything, and it doesn't help that there are certain things quite late in the film that I mean, we'll get onto it, but that really do sort of taint my view of what it's doing for the for the rest of it it has a pretty major thematic problem that that relates to a major change that it makes from the comic and i think throughout the film i mean the film is aware of what it's doing but i don't think it's aware of how unpleasant what it's doing is and it's 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 the class issue that we've already alluded to and and Mm. we'll get into further as well for all of that there are moments and set pieces that i really enjoyed i i tend to enjoy matthew vaughan's big set pieces and you know like the church bit was so obviously him just trying to top the warehouse bit in kick-ass and uh, stuff like that but you know it's i mean as, as andrew says like as a you know if you if you're gonna if you're gonna parody this genre because this genre generally isn't that serious anyway like you know bond films have jokes in so you can't do a light-hearted take on a bond film and aim for the same volume or level of jokes as a bond film because then you're not doing a light pastiche you're just doing the same thing um you need to austin powers it and you know I mean, Diminishing Returns for that series as a whole, but the first Austin Powers is a tremendously funny film. This is not do. This is not trying to do that, or if it is, it certainly doesn't succeed in that. But for all of that, it had moments that amused me. Um, the stuff you said about you know bits that you're kind of like, whoa, they did that is you know. I think they they happen both for good or bad for me in it. Like the um, you know the bit with the exploding heads is so utterly ridiculous, but I. I was quite amused by it just because it, you know, that's the point where the film just loses any semblance of being based in any reality whatsoever. But there are other ways in which it tries to make jokes that don't really work. And it does have a, it's got an unpleasant undercurrent to it that isn't immediately apparent Mm. because um, actually, do you know, I think it's when the film loses Colin Firth that you lose that that nice veneer that it's got over it. Like I think a lot of what Colin Firth does in this film does really well to mask the unpleasantness that sits underneath. And as soon as he's gone, there's nothing left to detract away from that because Taron Egerton's character certainly isn't going to manage to do that. I think that's a really interesting point. I think because the the argument, certainly if you read like film critic Hulk, Hulk's piece on this, it, I find incredibly dense and hard work, But because he loved it so much. I went in trying to get the best out of it. Um, and there is a thing about, oh, yeah, but we're showing up what the Bond films really are when you look past the veneer. And from that, if that's the reading, then the charm of the Bond actor is what helps that veneer stay in place. Mm. So arguably, by removing Firth, by removing James Bond from your James Bond movie, 
what does it look like without him is actually kind of an interesting question. But what it looks like is not very nice. And yeah. it, the question then becomes, do I want to watch a not very nice thing? And I get stuck there. The other interesting thing, I think, is if we're going to talk about bravado, and it is worth... Because this is the guy who had the had Hit Girl come in and say the most offensive, brilliant things. Yes. Um, and this movie absolutely tries to do that again. It says, look how daring we're willing to be. Look how courageous. Look at the bravado. It's very clear on kind of diving into that and saying, no, no, authored work, and we do shit like this. The thing is... It keeps pulling punches all the way through the film. Mm. So it says, oh, we're willing to kill a dog. We're willing to kill Kingsman trainees just like that. And in fact, no, you're not. Three quarters of the way through the movie, it says, don't be daft. We don't kill Kingsman trainees. We pretend to. Don't be daft. We wouldn't drop you out of a, a plane and let you splat on the floor. Your parachute was working the same as all the other. We wouldn't ask you to actually kill a dog. That would be insane. That's the bravado we're talking about. That's the, oh man, you're willing to do anything. No, not really. And I think that reflects, I mean, in terms of the the unpleasant undercurrent and the kind of, I mean, I think we'll get to issues later in this of the way it approaches particularly class, but also race and gender. The politics of this film, I think it's in a constant state of having its cake and trying to eat it too. And... I feel like the film thinks it's subverting those issues and is actually empowering, and it's not. This isn't like the people who responded to Kick-Ass and was like, oh, it's morally reprehensible. Mm. I don't think it's a morally reprehensible movie. I am just... I'm uncomfortable with the... uh, There are various stages throughout this film that I kind of go... I'm not quite sure I like the way you've chosen to do that. I'm not quite sure I'm on board with your worldview here. I think it's badly out of control of the message it's sending, because the alternative reading mm. is that it's completely in control of the things that it's saying, and some of the things that it's saying are, are, are too awful. So I think you have to assume there's a, a certain amount of, oh, God, I see, yeah, when you line all those things up together, that's not great. Um, so, for for example, it wants to say... Something about how a Kingsman institution, while having its upsides, is also an old, fusty, old boys network. It's about posh people and, you know, what about the real people who exist in the real country? Um, The everyday folk. Well, the everyday folk are presented as people who steal from you and are abusive to their wives and partners. (laughs) There's, yeah. there's not a great Spend spread. Spend their days drinking in the pub and nicking yeah. cars. and It's not a terrific presentation of those people, but also if you want to say, no, 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 come on, anyone can be a Kingsman, the son of a Kingsman who is white is not the greatest stretch they could have gone for. <laughs> it's, a, it's a guy whose dad was one. In terms of, oh, now you've got to reach outside of the regular demographics for Kingsman, maybe, possibly, you know, like a Michaela Cole type would have been an interesting movie. And also, he fails at being a Kingsman, um, mm. but that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't play into things at all, other than getting him out of the way for when we need to kill off Colin Firth. <laughs> um, I, I think we should probably talk about some of the, the kind of the basic structural stuff before we dive into all of that. And I think... I think the basic structural stuff in terms of Bond, um, especially because we've got Andrew here, is probably the first port of call. I mean, it's interesting, Seb, you said pastiche. Now, I'm not sure it is a pastiche other than I think it's Mark Miller and Matthew Vaughan because this is another case of this was a comic even more so than Kick-Ass that was 
developed by Vaughn and Miller together. I think they're making a spy movie in the style of a Roger Moore-era spy movie, kind of a little bit Stephen Peel as well, and basically trying to make their version of one of those. So I I don't think it comes across as a pastiche or a deconstruction or anything like that. I feel like it's just, oh, we liked these things about Bond movies. This is what a Matthew Vaughan, Mark Miller Bond movie would look like. Weirdly, I think we've already seen what a Matthew Vaughan Bond movie without Mark Miller looks like, um, and it's that <laughs> sequence in X Men First Class. Yeah, and it is oh exponentially superior to the one that introduces Mark Miller yeah. into the fold. Um, but so, Andrew, it, it, would you agree with that? Is that is that what you think they're trying to I, do with the Bond motif here? I I mean, I agree they're trying to do it, if only because they keep putting in dialogue things about how it's definitely supposed to be. You remember those good old spy movies? Clear <laughs> heroes, clear villains. Well, n- well, number one, it doesn't do clear heroes and clear villains. The the villain's obvious because he's got a lisp and and money. and he. But he's not presented as having like a really clean, straightforward evil motive that we can all get behind. He's trying to cure global warming. It's yeah. a very odd pick if you want to say, no, no, just hate him. Isn't it great? You can just hate him. But then, you know, then the lisp's not great either, and that is a deconstruction of Bond, I guess, in as much as we, we do have a terrible habit with Bond movies of giving people physical deformities and then saying, see, look, they're, they're bad on the outside too. That Apparently isn't... that was a Samuel L. Jackson invention. He turned up to the set doing the lisp, Oof. and... Well, originally this character was going to be more Mark Zuckerberg-y, and then right. they decided, oh, no, no, it'd be more Steve Jobs. And then they cast Samuel L. Jackson. He turned up doing the lisp, and the reason Samuel L. Jackson said was, it was like, well, to, to, to push this guy, this kind of guy who's done, you know, Steve Jobs-esque things into making this kind of decision, he has to have been fighting a battle his entire life. He has to have been made fun of his entire life, and he has to have this chip on his shoulder. Does that ever come across in the film no. at any point whatsoever? No. And apparently Matthew um, Vaughan went, all right then, just to do it. This is kind of what I mean by a confluence of circumstances. Because if, if you didn't write him as a black guy with a lisp... You, then you didn't build into the original drafted plan of the movie this kind of subtext that he's got going on. But we, if the actor turns... You, of course you cast Samuel L. Jackson if you can get him. Why bloody wouldn't you? But that then adds a whole different dimension to that character. And then if he turns up with a thing he wants to do and it's that, and you let that through, then it starts to pile on a collection of... However, this is... The thing about it being a Roger Moore Bond film, what are the Roger Moore Bond films, actually? One of the key things about them is they don't have character growth. They absolutely don't. They play through. Mm. Everyone's got one motive, one angle, and they do it the whole movie. Well, that's not what's happening in this movie. This is a training montage movie, in part. It's an origin story. It is absolutely an origin story. As such, the only Bond movie it's remotely like is Casino Royale, structurally. Which is the Bond movie that they said... that Well, they said they watched Casino Royale and kind of went, oh, like, uh, yeah, we, we like this, but... You know, this is supposed to be Bond's origin story, but when we see him, he's already Bond. It's like, well, you haven't seen him physically training to be no. James, to be an agent. But in terms of developing that character to kind of make you look at James Bond as a character and go, what would make that guy tick in a particular way? Yeah, that's what 
which Casino Royale does no, in nobody, the way of an origin story. It nobody, doesn't simply put him through some training. That's the thing, is it, it mistakes the genre of something, the signifiers, the training montages, and the mission that goes wrong, and you feel like a washout, and you try again. I don't want to see Daniel Craig discover that there's a switch on his umbrella... Like that's not <laughs> that's not interesting. Discovering how it is that he's a, he used to be a lover in the most old fashioned sense of the word, and now he's a lover in the most crass and modern sense of the word. Where, where, where that change? That's the origin story. That's the bit. In terms of Roger Moore bonds, though, what we have is a guy who is a fixed point, and someone else who's a fixed point, and the problem is they have two opposing perspectives on the world one is keep it very much the same and one is change it to my dictatorship and you watch them go at each other until such time as one of them explodes and this doesn't quite do that because i although there is a there is an ideological difference between eggsy and the villain in this what they never do is put eggsy and the villain together for any period of time one of the key things of a roger moore bond film is i'm going to go and live under his roof for 20 minutes and at the end of it he'll try to kill me so they hang out and they suss each other out and they have barbed conversation. Well, they give that to, to Colin Firth instead, Yeah, is the thing. Mm. and yeah, So that they can have their moment of, ha ha ha, we've killed James Bond three yeah. quarters of the way through the that's film. A, that's a lot of movie for that joke, isn't it? Mm. Although, you know, as I said before, you know, I think I was enjoying the film with Colin Firth as the lead far more than I enjoyed the film with Taron Egerton. As well, the there lead. you go. You are cutting back to a very linear training montage collection of stuff there. That stuff has a very straightforward, amount, straightforward structure. Of course he has to keep passing. Of course he has to keep getting through the next stage and the next stage <laughs> and the next stage. So the sooner we can get out of all the training stuff and get into a film where he's actually trying to do a mission, and we don't. That's that's right towards the end. I, I feel like I should just jump in here and say, I do think that Tarry, Taron Egerton is very good. I, I, I quite like him, and I think he is well cast as a guy who can play both the kind of the working class kid and then the, the kind of the more refined Kingsman agent. Um... And I agree with that. I just think his character is just there's just oh yeah, it's there's, not... there's so little to to grab onto. Yeah. Like, and yes. and and what what you do in terms of like his motivations and what he's like, it's it's you're you're told it, you're never shown it, it never comes across in the character. Like you, I never get a sense of why he is the kind of material that they're looking for. The film just makes him be that way. That's a fundamental problem with the with the film. The fact that he is the son of a Kingsman agent. Yeah. There's nothing in there to to show you that anything in the way he was nurtured has led him to be a Kingsman agent. So it's purely oh his dad was so then he must be so it's a kind of a nature thing. So then there's nothing there's nothing really about him other than oh it's kind of a destiny boring hero's journey kind of thing what is it what is it that colin firth sees in him that that switches him from i will get you out of this cell because that's the favor we owe you to actually why don't you come and have a go at this kingsman business other than he stands he stands up to his mum getting hit oh mm. yeah is that but is but that it's... it is, is that it it, I think it, that I think that demonstrates uh, one of the problems with, and the, and there are several, but one of the problems with how they change it from the source material, because what they've done is the source material 
does have a reason and by changing what they change that reason is gone and they don't replace it with anything they just right. assume it's still there basically yeah. i think i think if Colin if Colin first thing is ah you're willing to stand up to people good for you but then the and then you wash out because you don't want to execute a dog like those two <laughs> things sat, sit in direct opposition to each other Yes. You're, I'm willing to stand up to anyone, but you shouldn't stand up to the Kingsman. Now, you can argue there's a satire to that, but I don't think the film's doing that. I think it's doing the 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 points it needs to hit to get Eggsy to the next stage in the story, rather than going, see, look how these two things contrast. Yeah. Getting back to the Bond stuff. Yes. Um how how do you how do you feel it kind of works with the more kind of this surface level tropey kind of stuff? So um, Sophia Batella's gazelle as the <laughs> henchman, for instance, um, or kind of you know some of the more punny kind of stuff and the gadgets and all that kind of stuff. Does it it's, does it work on that kind of surface level? Isn't, as, isn't it isn't it weird how difficult they find it to do anything that the, the daftest of the Bonds wouldn't do? Certainly, the gadgets are a lot more dull than. Yeah. I mean, they are Daniel Craig era gadgets rather For, than it's the mad umbrella is still less mad than the bad car that Pierce Brosnan gets to turn invisible inside so I don't know I, I feel like the thing about Roger Moore Bond movies is because they are a form because there is a real straight line that was a period of deep narrative lack of invention for the series but where the invention went was into design and direction and casting in fact a lot of the time so you would at least you would bump into and excuse me because I know people are going to hate this guy Sheriff J.W. Pepper (laughs) I don't hate that guy (laughs) at at least there's a comedy racist sat in the car for a couple of scenes to, to buck up an action sequence that you've otherwise feel like you've maybe seen before um I Although don't... he is in one of the best action sequences in Bond history when the car does the flip. Oh, man, but they, then they put the penny whistle over the top yeah. and ruin it completely. <laughs> but that's oh. because he's there. That's yeah. be- if he wasn't there, they would have played it straight. He falls into the back seat. They cut back to the car and he's in the back seat of the car after the flip. <laughs> but the thing... And actually, that's that's the thing. I mean, OK, then we can argue this one's trying to do Roger Moore Bond movie and actually not doing it big enough and well enough that you don't bump into enough weird interesting secondary characters to give your movie a little bump because it's Samuel L. Jackson and his sidekick over and over and over and over again rather than this kind of constant um, breadcrumb trail like he even was Mark Hamill's in it right Mark Hamill's doing that scientist part and he's not that interesting it's just that he's doing an English accent that makes him interesting in that part. Well, there is a specific reason why it's Mark Hamill. Because in the comic, Mark Hamill is a character who is kidnapped, right? Yeah, it's well. I mean, well, I mean, when we get on to talk about the differences in the comic, but yeah, one of, one of the major differences. I mean, I'll talk about it briefly. But you you mentioned um, the moving um, the villain away from being. Zuckerberg in the comic the villain is actually called Dr Arnold um, so he's Mark Hamill's character right. in this is name but he's a completely different character ah. um, he is basically a nerdy billionaire um, and he's still got the same plan 
but his arc is made up of celebrities who he's a fan of. Gotcha. Um, so there is actually, in, in one of the later issues, there's a reference to the fact that the cast of Red Dwarf have just arrived. <laughs> um, but at the very beginning of the comic, the first few pages of the first issue of the comic, um, a secret agent is mounting a rescue campaign to rescue Mark Hamill, and this is at a point right. where they don't know why these celebrities are being kidnapped, um, and both the agent and Mark Hamill are killed in a snowmobile accident. Um <laughs> So I presume Mark Hamill would have had to have given his approval for that in the first place. Or maybe he wouldn't have, actually, but I think they probably did ask him. And that would presumably then have led to him also being the character who gets gotcha. kidnapped at the start you of the film. You see, the film has a touch of that, in because it, like one of the first people it mentions being missing is Iggy Azalea. Yeah. Well, it's so bizarre, isn't it? They mention Iggy Azalea, and then they don't mention any other celebrities. Yeah, because well, yeah. it, see, it seems to me that because what eventually happens is it turns out that basically everyone... Which I'm not sure what this says about Iggy Azalea, but it basically says that pretty much everyone has gone there willingly and is perfectly happy to watch the rest of the world die and that's why you don't mind the fact well, that they not, all get their heads blown up later not on every, so basically the, there is the people who go missing I think it is more implied they're the people like the princess who have been locked yeah. up who have been but you don't uh, find out who any of them are <laughs> no you see but you so you basically there is implications. Some people have been approached and have said no, and so they've gone missing and they're locked up, but they need to be kept around because, like they said to the princess, you have like a sway or an influence over your region, mm. which doesn't extend to the Iggy Azalea, so I guess maybe no. she is just one of the people. Well, they definitely toned down the idea that this is just a nerdy guy rescuing people who he likes. Yeah. It's like, he's got this plan to bring down the world's population, but he really doesn't want to lose the cast of Star Wars in the process. Isn't, so. isn't that less... Isn't that less Bond villain in the film well, than, well, than it is in the comic? Isn't the comic yeah. more Bond villain-esque then? <laughs> yeah. It's very, I mean, it's certainly very Casino Royale, the one with Woody Allen. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, the, I tell you, the other thing that makes it feel not Roger Moore to me is, although I, I've got so much respect for getting this movie financed, getting it made the way you want to make it, and then releasing it to the, the distribution companies how you want to do it. Like The, the, the courage of the produ- producing on this movie genuinely has me impressed. However, it means that you can't do any of the big budget things. It means you can't actually go to... When Samuel L. Jackson says, yeah, I'm going to Ascot, and then we cut to him after Ascot with his hat still on, well, no, the scene that we're missing there is where he's he's at Ascot and being funny and interesting in a setting that's odd. Like, yeah. that, there's a missing beat for that, and it's the same thing when Colin Firth turns up for the ball and he's cancelled everybody and ordered McDonald's, and I get the joke, but there's a, a, an undercurrent underneath that of, couldn't afford a ball. Yeah, and instead, <laughs> so the action we get is some of the really ultra-violent stuff, which, again, of... Of all of the Bonds, Roger Moore era Bond is the more kind of light, frothy, actiony kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas Connery, Lazenby, Dalton, Craig, maybe not Brosnan, but all the rest of those are uh, have the more violent edge that the Moore era doesn't have, and that and doing the mon- the Moore era tropes, and especially I think Gazelle is actually it's a nice idea for a henchman. Um, I like the idea, I like the fact that it's a female henchman and she's badass and she effectively kills a James Bond in her opening scene. It's unfortunate that she is um, another black character next to Samuel L. Jackson as the two kind of evil characters of the movie going against the the white 
generic Kingsmen yeah. who were all good guys. <laughs> but I do like. I I think Gazelle works from a design point of view, and um, she I think looks she, great and she I, moves I, great. I think she's a very good drawing. I mean, I think I think. But that's a, what hench. That's what Ben Bond henchmen are. Aren't you're they? not. You're not wrong. But the the very best ones. I mean, if you want to look at Odd Job or something, who's the same, who has the same gig, right? Who is completely mute and has the one thing that they can keep, that he keeps on his body that's also murderous. Yeah. How you cut to that character and when? There's a lot of things wrong with Goldfinger, but one of the things it knows is how to make black comedy about the fact that Odd Job's looking at you right now. Yes, it's really yeah. good at doing those cut twos at the right time. I feel like every time we cut, we cut to her, and I, I, I feel bad about this, but it felt like oh, just to remind you, she's still in the scene. It wasn't. It, it didn't suddenly add a new layer of wit over the top. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I just, I'm, I'm approaching it completely from a design point of view. Oh You're yeah, right. she, she. I mean, and she. The reason, the reason it becomes egregious that she is boring and doesn't really get anything to do most of the time, aside from kind of her opening and closing action scenes, it becomes more of a problem because she is one of the few female characters in the movie, and because she is one of the few characters of colour in the movie and because yeah. the movie is uh, supposedly I th- or, or thinks it is being progressive with its approach to women because oh hey look the one person who passed the Kingsman programme is a woman oh yeah but you don't let her be the hero at the end so <laughs> that's irrelevant and oh yeah the- Gazelle is badass, but she's been given literally two lines in the entire film, so... They, they paint that poor Kingsman character into such a corner because Eggsy has to be the lead of the movie because he has been the whole time. Yes. So they can't, can't do anything as subversive as getting rid of him and making him sit at home and deal with his mum while she goes and kicks ass in the villain's base, which could have been interesting, by the way. Can you imagine if Sophie Cookson was doing that stuff in the base instead? And I tell you what, the final joke would be, there'd be a twist to it, and it'd be a lot funnier and yeah. more progressive if Sophie Cookson was there. There's, I tell you what, the, the the idea, the thing you were talking about there about the ultraviolence as well, like ultraviolence, I mean, we're so, <laughs> we're so used to it now that it doesn't even feel that ultra anymore. No. Um... I was surprised at how not so... I mean, that scene is violent, but everyone had talked about it. And then when I saw it, I was like, this is not anything like as bad as... Like, I was able to cope with it, and I'm not great with violence and gore, but there was nothing that particularly... There were maybe a couple of individual moments where I maybe went... (sighs) But other than that, it was not a particularly unpleasant... You know, it wasn't that bit... That again, I've I've read about rather than seen, but not that bit in Cabin in the Woods. Well, it's you not know, bloody, is it? Like it doesn't dwell. No. It's it's all it's all very stylish and bang, yeah, and it's all bang. quick and yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. I think there's an argument. If you want to make an argument for the satirical nature of of Gainsman, there is an argument that what they're doing is no, no. This is what it would be really like if a Bond film happened. Look, bullets make holes in people. Things that slice across your throat make a real mess. That's okay, but it, that thing of this is what would really happen in a Bond film, and then doing bits that are just a Bond film, and then pinging or giving bet- him a bulletproof suit. Right, exactly. <laughs> pinging between those two, and it, that uh, that I quite love Jack Davenport turning up as James Bond at the beginning. That yes. kind of makes me cheer. It reminded me so much of the opening of Triple X, the um, <laughs> the not very good Vin Diesel movie, which puts right up front and center. 
James Bond is dead. The world doesn't need him anymore. What it needs is movies like this. And it sells you Vin Diesel instead because the opening of Triple X is a guy, a, an agent in a tuxedo goes to a, this head-banging club and gets his ass handed to him because he looks completely out of place. What is he wearing a tuxedo for? This is completely wrong. Because that's the thing about James Bond. He's famously not able to blend in. Mm. <laughs> so... So what you get is a movie that says, look, we killed James Bond at the beginning because we're so different from James Bond. And then, along with Samuel L. Jackson, I think, it does a movie that says, I mean, actually, though, the James Bond formula's pretty good. We should probably just stick to that. <laughs> so so here's, here's our version of M. Here's our version of Q. Uh, oh, there's the... He'll go to the villain's base and live there for a bit and sleep with his girlfriend. Like, it does literally all the beats. And I feel like that was this, that it, it announces itself very hard as being a James Bond movie. And then it says, no, we're a subversion of a James Bond movie. And then it lurches back and said, but give us a pass on this, because this is what Bond movies do. Yeah, and I don't, know, I don't know about you guys, but I think another thing that doesn't work for this for me in the Bond uh, parallel is that... The great thing about James Bond is that this is James Bond doing it and only James Bond could be doing these things because he is the he is the <laughs> ultimate super spy. Mm. He's the he's the British ideal and you then introduce this film where one of them is killed pre-credits, another one is killed in one of the opening scenes. We then spend a lot of time with Colin Firth, who is ostensibly kind of the main James Bond of this movie. Um, we see a table full of clones of him uh, in a hologram, and then Eggsy is being trained to be the next one. And it takes away from any of them being particularly special. And I don't feel like the film approaches the point where it goes, oh no, actually this Kingsman thing has kind of been flawed all the way along and the Eggsy is actually that, you know, because of his different backgrounds is going to be better at this than anyone because he doesn't ever really seem better at this than anyone. In fact, he he seems like he's there because of luck, because ultimately he failed and he's, I, you know, he's, he's got a second go at it. I think that's a very good point. You know how, how um, and actually of all things, it was the Robocop remake that recently flagged this to me, was... Robocop gets hold of, of the, the CCTV for the whole of Detroit, looks at it and goes, I've got like 500 murderers here, all banged to rights on CCTV. Go out, we should go out and arrest them. And you go, how bad were the cops in this town that there was footage of all of these killers? And they went, I don't know, we can't make it stick. And it's, it's like that. In order to make Robocop look like a good cop, you have to make all the other cops look crap. Um... And that's kind of like this. In order to make make Eggsy look like a really good Kingsman, better than the rest, you have to make all of the other ones sort of doomed to failure from quite early on. Yeah, I, I, I mean to get to get to the end as well with the characters that we're left with with Eggsy and Roxy. I mean, because what happens to the rest of the Kingsman agents? Are they are they all in league with? Michael it's Kane. not clear, is it? Yeah, whether there is a brilliant moment where they decide they can't contact any of them because they might have already been suckered in. And the thing is, they can test this really quickly because we already know all the people who are caught up in it have got a scar behind their ear. Yeah, that's that's laid out really clearly in the grammar of the movie all the way through. So as soon as you see the scar, you know they've been taken. If they haven't got one, they're going to die when the next thing when the thing hits. So all they have to do is just check some recent footage of it. They don't even have to go to their houses. 
<laughs> and they don't. They go, well, we're going to have to do this ourselves. Why? Reasons. <laughs> so who knows where the rest of them are right now? So, Seb, you read Kingsman in preparation for this before you watched Well, The, the Secret movie. Service is the name of the, is the, name of the comic. Oh, okay. But, yeah. So yeah. You, you read The Secret Service in, in uh, preparation yeah. for this. And... Am I right in saying that there are there are at least there's at least one major change in relation to Eggsy's why Eggsy is recruited? Yeah, and well he's not he's, he's also he's also not not Eggsy in the in the comic. Uh, okay. he's just he's Gary. Um, his name's Gary London. Um, although I don't know if London is really his surname actually because it's to do with um, the 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 character that isn't Harry Hart either. But, okay, so, I mean, actually, the, the, uh, up front about the comic, something that, as as I say, kind of surprised me about the comic was, I mean, it came out in 2012, um, so I'm only kind of just reading it now, but I would have to say that it's probably the strongest Mark Miller comic I've read since uh, the first Kick-Ass. And that surprised me because, I mean, Mark Miller has done some shit in the last few years um and also it kind of went under the radar like when it first came out when the first issue came out there was a fair bit of buzz around it and it was predominantly around the fact that it was mark miller working with dave gibbons um and mark miller's had a lot of creator owned projects with big name artists in the last 10 years um but with the exception of kick-ass most of them haven't tended to stick in terms of like publicity like they've, they've carried on and they've tended to get published and they've tended to finish but it's actually rare that his projects really make a big splash in comics beyond like the first issue and i think the last one that maybe did was nemesis and i think maybe nemesis is the one that's responsible for the subsequent ones maybe not getting as much coverage um because nemesis follows the mark miller pattern of um the first issue is terrific and sets up this really clever one-line elevator pitch premise which nemesis is um what if Batman was the villain? Like, it's, you know, there is only one costumed character with gadgets and a cave and all of that, but he is a supervillain and he fights cops, basically. It's a great premise. First issue's terrific. The other three drop off a cliff and become one of the worst comics I've ever read. So I enjoyed the first issue of Secret Service, but I expected it to do a similar thing, and especially because I hadn't really heard people talking about the comic. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Being much good. Um, the only re- context I'd really heard about the comic in was in relation to the film and the fact that it was essentially created as a vehicle to, to get the film made. Um, what surprised me was that I enjoyed the comic all the way through to the end. Like, it's not the greatest thing I've ever read, but as I say, like for a, for a Miller creator-owned comic... Um, it definitely still has its problems and its problematic elements, but and some of the issues that the film has in terms of what it says about people are still 
present in the comic. But they're present to a slightly lesser extent, and the reason for that is the big difference between the comic and the film. Um, Harry Hart in the comic is not Harry Hart. His name is Jack London. He is Gary's uncle. And that is such a big difference um, in terms of the relationship between the two of them. And uh, the best way that I can sum this up is actually a a one-liner that that somebody, I believe it was Mark Clapham, but apologies if if I've misattributed it, said to me on Twitter when I was talking about having quite enjoyed the comic, which was, um, while the film is, uh, well, the the comic is shameless and the film is Pygmalion. Um, And obviously the film keeps going on about My Fair Lady and, and all of that kind of stuff, but what the film doesn't like the film like tells everyone that it's doing my fair lady but it forgets to do the ending of my fair lady where it sort of turns out that henry's not actually correct yes um instead what the film basically says is this guy from a working class background is worthless until someone from a better background comes along and educates him and elevates him um, the comic obviously does still have the element of Jack and Gary become important when they go out into the world and make themselves better. But the fact that Jack comes from the same background as Gary makes such a difference. Not least, it's little things like when Jack goes into that pub dressed the way that he dresses and sits down and orders a pint and a bunch of thugs come over to him and take the piss out of him for how he's dressed. And he's like, listen, sunshine, I've been drinking in this pub since before you were born. That is a big difference. To Colin Firth going in and having his pint against. I mean, that's a good scene. I like that scene, but it's saying something so completely different. Um, and it, at least, as well, what the comic gives you is when they call Uncle Jack to get Gary out of prison, but they say, well, you know, stop him from being sent to prison. It's not just, right, I've done you that favour. Um, oh, I happen to see something in you, but I'm not entirely sure what it is. What it actually is in the comic is Jack feels guilty about the fact that he hasn't been in contact with his sister and her son for all of this time. Oh. Sees that her son, who he knows is intelligent and has some potential, has completely gone off the rails and says to him, or basically is, all right, I'm going to make it up to you. Come with me. I'll help you make something of your life. It's it's it's, it's a totally different story, you basically. See, I can understand Matthew Vaughan wanting to do a different story to that, but then I would think that the change you make is that Eggsy is a kid who happens to catch Colin Firth's attention by doing something. Or you know, and that's why that's why Harry recruits him because he spots mm. something in him that retaining any. Kind All he's of got to do is steal his car or something yes. like that. Which I think I think I think Gary does that to Jack in the comic. Although I think Jack has already decided at that point that he is going to help him. But if 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 Exy just shows his resourcefulness by stealing, if Harry's got this this great car that's that's a spy car that's really difficult to crack or whatever. And Gary um, Eggsy rather goes and steals it. Then immediately you've got your oh okay this kid's resourceful and bang. It's you know. also though it's worth it's worth noting that he spots him as a kid who's gone off the rails that he wants to help straighten out because yeah. that's not who Eggsy is. Eggsy's yeah. not off the rails at all. Eggsy is presented as oh he's normal for his class and where he lives. Yeah, which means that when he does something a bit criminal, it's kind of got a subtext of yeah, because they're all a bit like that. The idea that there's a real problem with the guy, as opposed to a problem with his life, like he's got a problem with a stepdad and all of that kind of stuff, mm. but he do- he himself doesn't sort of have a built-in personal problem 
about his personality, about his nature in the top end of the movie, which means that as you teach him stuff, you go, well, yeah, you're, you're teaching him some new things, but he'll still keep all the yeah. old stuff. Whereas that sounds like a story about fixing a character who's got a big flaw that needs dealing with. That's a better arc, isn't it? And let's yeah. let's take that, then let's discuss the class issues of the movie, because by doing what the movie does with Eggsy, it it does kind of take away from that, you know, like, oh, like, you can, it doesn't matter what your background is, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if you've got that something, you can, you can be special. Um, and but that's Eggsy- not what the film says is the thing. No, I mean, there's so even it a line of dialogue where, you know, what, what Colin Firth basically says to him is, um, if you haven't got that silver spoon, you can, you could still get that silver spoon later. And that's a different thing. It's a very odd thing to say, no, no, you can train him up and make him like this. And as Seb says, to to do a third act that basically says, yeah, and when he completely conforms to being Kingsman-like, then he's finished. Yes. Then we have solved him. And it's that's a really odd set of a combination to put together. But in his in his training, in his in his sections between being picked up and being sent out on this big final thing. What are the parts of, yeah, he grew up with a working class background. By the way, they have, that group of people have a whole load of skills and abilities too. It's, it's mm. literally just the, the scene with Michael Caine where he says, oh, you know, I grew up on the streets, I'm light-fingered, and I switched drinks. <laughs> it's, the princess, yeah. br- it's the princess bride mm. moment. I don't, un- I don't understand why you don't show him walking into a pub that Harry couldn't walk into and survive. I don't see. I don't. Mm. I feel like you're missing a huge trick mm. by suggesting that. Well, everything you're going to do is going to be quite posh end. So really, anything you know so far isn't going to be useful unless you don't have any criminal tendencies, do you? Because those are quite handy. <laughs> I think honestly, the reason why the film gets away with it or manages to hide it beneath the rest of the kind of superficial veneer that it does is it is because of Taron Egerton's performance. Because in that third act, he is able to tread a nice line between embodying the Kingsman agent and also retaining a bit of his own personality. Some of that, it plays into that final joke, the kind of, uh, maybe not the joke itself, but the swagger of Eggsy as he is walking through the corridors, the way he looks at himself in the suit for the first time, and the way that he kind of, he is playing a posh guy Mm -hmm. to to, uh, fool his way in rather than actually transforming into a posh guy. I think Taron Egerton does a really good job. I think I pronounce his surname a lot four different ways so far on this <laughs> podcast, but I think he does a great job there keeping you on the character's side at least and kind of hiding that class stuff. I think he reconciles those those aspects very well. Um, I don't think the film particularly does. I don't think the writing particularly does. I feel like there's a version where... You get you got Jimmy McGovern in for a week to just do an exit <laughs> polish all the way through, where suddenly he's actually the most charming, the best flirt, the the most supremely cocky and confident, and actually the most cunning of the characters. Like he's a, a think around the problem kind of guy. Like he's actually James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> and with, yeah, and but with a with that, and actually with they his... almost do that. That's what the smashing the mirror is. The smashing of the mirror when the room's flooding is that. Because there is a kind of, I mean, just go through the wall kind of quality yeah. Yeah. to that moment. 
and it doesn't really hold on to beats like that. It does it. It does it that once, but it doesn't. There's nothing about the falling out of the plane and collecting everybody where you go. Well, of course, his nature is going to make him much better at this than everybody else. There's a great sequence in uh, the comic that's basically his his main bit of training, and it's his kind of you know you will succeed or fail at this point bit of training. Uh, and it's, it's one of these things where again, I mean, you know, f- for all of the faults with Miller, every so often Miller can come up with a conceit and then and a, and a set piece that that just works. Um, so he's dropped in Colombia with nothing, like no clothes, like literally like in his underwear and nothing else, mm-hmm. and is told that he has like a certain number of hours to locate um, his passport and flight ticket to get back to British soil. And like there's one flight that he can get and he has to get that back. Um, and you know, otherwise he'll fail basically. And the coordinates f- that he f- that he's able to find for where his passport is is in the home of um, a, a noted drug lord. And I think the intention of the mission is that you know he'll surreptitiously sneak in like a secret agent and all that kind of thing. His first instinct when he's on the ground um, is that he. Um, steals a police car and takes the policeman hostage to try and find like a way to get back. Um, he drives to the coordinates where it is, realises that it's a drug lord's place and basically rams in in a police car and shoots <laughs> the place up. Um, then back in the UK, they've noticed that he's not on the flight, so they assume that he's failed, um, at which point he arrives in the drug lord's private jet with the drug lord in tow, having apprehended him. <laughs> Um, it's great it's just such a good sequence and you know it it gets across you know here's someone who comes into this scenario and approaches it from a completely different angle and does better than they actually expected their agents to do in the process that's a lot closer that's a lot closer I mean actually it's interesting because if you because as Joe said there is a there is a James Bond quality already to I'm going to think around the problem and just smash my yeah. way through. Like that already, he's already a blunt instrument. That's how Bond gets described all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I was thinking about Colin Firth in the bar. There is an equivalent to that in the Roger Moore era, which is when he goes into the... Oh, dear. Live and let die. He goes into a, a bar in a black <laughs> neighbourhood in his God, suit yeah. and he orders a, you know, a bourbon and water, please. No ice. He said, that's extra, man. (laughs) And he's so out of... And that's the joke. He is so completely out of place. He's in completely wrong. Now, the the problem with that is you've just made your main character look such a fool. Like, the whole point of James Bond is he can kind of go in and blend anywhere. One of my my favourite bits with the Daniel Craig's recently is, is that... When when Silver tries to kind of seduce him while he's strapped to a chair, oh, yes. What makes you think this was my first time? The yeah. he, you all, you, everyone's supposed to go. Oh man, James Bond's so ridiculously heterosexual. He's gonna know he went to public school. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> there is there is no question that he. It doesn't matter. We won't go into details. There's no question that he's been there and done that. And that lovely little subversive note. That's the opposite of Bond in the bar. And that's. It's it's kind of how I feel about the Colin Firth thing is that he strides in there and looks completely out of place and draws attention to himself and it's like if you were really good at being a Kingsman that wouldn't have happened. There's there's something in that scene in particular that I think needs to be addressed and yeah. I think this is a rare case of Matthew Vaughan just having having completely misedited or misunderstood how his scene is going to come across. Mm-hmm. So that Colin Firth in that scene is sat at the table 
with Eggsy. And he makes as if he is going to walk away and leave the bar. Now, on reflection, you, you watch the film a second time. You see Taron Egerton's character at the end of the film does the same thing again with the manners make of man and locking the door and all that. It's clearly what he's doing is he's walking towards the door to lock it. Yeah. Now, but, the film, the yeah. film at the first time of asking has him walking away and then one of the characters, and this is a, it's a great segue from you talking about that scene in Skyfall. Yeah. Um, it, 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 one of the characters basically goes, it makes a gay slur about him. And the way that it reads in the film is, oh, you've just called me gay. I'm going to turn around and beat the crap out of you all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now it's, it's, I think it's very clearly on a rewatch and with context at the end of the film, not the intent of the scene. Yeah. But I, I've seen so many reviews and so many like intelligent people watching that scene and reading it that way. And the first time if, I watched If so it, many people read it that way, that... That tells you something. Yeah, the first time I saw it, that's what I thought. And I, I, I actually rewatching it today, uh, or the other day, I, I, I kind of I, I rewound it and just checked, and I was like, no, I think he is going to lock the doors anyway. But it's so not clear, and it's it, such when when there is so much of the other stuff in terms of like I've said, race, gender, class in the film that seems totally inconsistent or doesn't you know works in one moment and doesn't work the next. It's a film that allows you to believe that it does have a horribly homophobic moment mm-hmm. in one of the kind of defining scenes of the movie, I think, and it's a real, real problem. There's a, there is definitely. I mean, I think it. I think you're right. I think if you direct that scene, knowing you're going to do a version of that scene later with Eggsy in doing the same thing, if you know it's going to have a parallel. You already then you already know he's going to lock the door because that's what that gesture means because you saw it in the previous scene. But you can't direct and edit the first version of the scene like you know that. Yeah. The audience are int- being introduced to it brand new, and it absolutely looks like <laughs> it absolutely looks like with nail and I, where I have I have been called a ponce. It's it's <laughs> yeah, got yeah. a real kind of oh man, he's taken that really. It it. It shouldn't have to read that way. It's the guy knows. I, th- I absolutely think Colin Firth is supposed to know. He, I'm going to the door, and whatever he says, because he's going to say something, that's the thing I will take issue with, and I will turn and finish finish him off. He's got a plan right from the moment he stands up. But when you watch it for the first time, it doesn't look like that. It looks reactive. It absolutely looks reactive. Like I say, I think it. I think it points to some of the problems in the rest of the film that you can. Be, you can read. You can come out of the film thinking that that's what that scene was saying. It could have and, been any other insult. That's the stupid thing. Is he could yeah. have said literally any other insult. It could. He, he could even have just sarcastically said, "Nice shoes." Right, okay, insulted the shoes, here we go. Can we talk about, so So I think we kind of talked about a lot of the class stuff there, the the gender issues of the film, and I, I want to talk about Sophie Cookson's Roxy, because, again, I feel like this is an area of the film where, the, where there was so much potential, that if you are going to have Roxy as the one who passes all the tests and actually be the most appropriate candidate for Kingsman, that could be a nice little undercutting and... Um, and subversion of the trope that oh you were expecting Bond to be this guy 
but it doesn't really work in the in the my fair lady sense of the story. Um, and also, I don't really feel like up to that point that Roxy is shown to be a better candidate than Eggsy or than any of them really. She she doesn't smash through the mirror at the start and she doesn't come up with the plan with the parachutes and uh, we see Eggsy shooting the balloon over her head with the sniper rifle so he kind of like mm-hmm. caught her out in that scene and so that doesn't really work and, and again I feel like there's potential there with that character that if you are going to have all of the kind of the uni guys being the kind of the, you know, the buffoons to be sent up and we'll show how these posh guys aren't necessarily any better just because of their education that if you are going to do something different with her, then why not have her learning some of the stuff that Eggsy is bringing to it. So Eggsy is kind of learning some of... He's gaining some of the more middle-class Kingsman-esque traits, and Roxy is maybe learning stuff from Eggsy that she wouldn't have implemented otherwise. And and so when you get to that final act, you have two characters who have both learned from each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great idea, but it's also predicated on the notion of showing Eggsy bringing something from his background yes. to the process, yeah, yeah, which the film doesn't do, as, we, as we've discussed. So it's it's unfortunately a non-starter for the film as it stands. But yeah, it would make all kinds of sense. And if you were, you know, if you were trying to do something that I mean, I, I know you know we're, we're not really clear because the film isn't clear on whether it's trying to subvert Bond or just do it straight, but. Um, you know there are definitely moments where it suggests they are trying to subvert it and if you're trying to subvert it then woman agent is super capable is is definitely you know one of the obvious ways that you'd go um but it again it's 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 tell but not show isn't it yeah. it's as you say we you know we never see and and really if if you do want to go that subversive route she should be as much the lead as Eggsy I mean it turns into a different film if if Eggsy is a girl so you know it's not just it's not just a case of just swap the, you know just gender flip the role or anything but just have her be more active than she is and yeah give, give us one moment where she does something that he can't like yeah. literally because it, because otherwise the only reason that she gets picked ahead of him is the the shooting the dog thing which I know is kind of the point that they're making but it's just but how did she get to that point in the first place she she should not have been on level terms with him up to that point because we haven't seen why she's so good we you know we want her to be good and you know it's it, it's a good arc if she is but we just never see it the kingsman training procedure is built in such a way as it doesn't reward success it penalizes failure you only have mm. to be not good to get kicked off. You don't actually have to be particularly good. <laughs> yeah. You only have to survive the wet room. You, you, yeah. you didn't have to solve the problem. You only had to live through it. And it's such an odd... I mean, you don't buy it as a process. You really don't buy no, it as a process no, at all. Not. I am willing to uh, buy what Matthew Vaughan has said about Roxy's part in the final act, which is that basically she was originally a lot more active but that they had to cut a lot of her stuff for time and pacing. And that may well be true, but the reason you're able to do that is because she doesn't get enough you know, investment earlier in the film. And so when she, when she was floating up to space in a chair, she was also <laughs> doing something really cool character interaction-wise, was she? I don't know. I'm just wondering whether... I, I mean, I don't know what it would mean <coughs> that she came back down and that she made her way to the others or something like that. I, I don't know. But... 
I mean, if you are able to cut all that stuff there, it suggests that you're probably a, you probably would have been able to cut a lot of the stuff with that character early in the film, other than the film thinks it's been smart by going, oh, hey, actually, the girl was the best agent, but then the- doesn't even follow through on it. So it, it makes it a completely hollow gesture. It undermines the gesture by... It, in fact, draws attention to the fact that all the female characters in this film are paper-thin ciphers. There's a very... I mean, you can look at a Roger Moore Bond film if you really want to and say, well, look, all they do is bring women agents in and say, aren't they competent too? I mean, they're not quite James Bond, but aren't they competent too? And, like, that's... There's some satire to be grasped from that, but the the way Bonds do that is to present them as decorative. Is to, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that's a good thing, but it brings in brings in characters and shows them as decorative. She's not even given the second dimension of being decorative. She's she's given competence, which the female Bond girls, Bond agents also get, and then she doesn't get to do any of the other things. It's so. I kind of respect the decision to not make her a love interest and not make her there yeah. just as Eggsy's romantic interest. But if you're doing a Bond film, that <laughs> that's yeah, probably an, what she should be. <laughs> it's back to this odd decision of, no, we're definitely being a Bond film. No, we're definitely undoing and subverting the Bond film. No, we're definitely being like a Bond film is. It it feels like every time you want, you need a get-out-of-jail-free card for one kind of thing that you want to do, you just say you're being the other thing. So it's, it's such an odd piece of construction. Yeah. Um... Should we talk about the big church scene? Uh, this is, like you said, Seb, it's the, it's the scene that everyone talks about. It is the, the Matthew Vaughan going, luck, what I can do. And I don't know about you guys, but I find it incredibly uncomfortable to watch. And not, not because of the level of violence, because I feel like it's a moment that the film is wanting me to cheer on and to go, oh, yeah, look at Harry being awesome and look at look at these people who are clearly clearly evil like they are I think supposed to be the Westboro Baptist Church basically oh yeah they completely are and I don't know I I don't look at the Westboro Baptist Church and go I would like to see all those people murdered horribly that's that's not what Mm. I want to see happen to those people and um, it for me it can't be a triumphant scene it's also being orchestrated by the villain and mm. again, going back to what you said earlier, Andrew, about kind of Sam Jackson's plan being evil, but also being kind of it having some kind of altruistic ideal at its core. Mm-hmm. It just comes across to me as a really tonally strange scene that I'm not that I think Matthew Vaughan wants me to think, oh, this is great. But I'm I'm not sure I'm not I'm, I can't be sure that he does because it falls so far away from that that I can't possibly believe that that is what he wanted me to get from that scene. It should be more. It should be presented as more horrific than than kind of kick-ass to to coin a phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the film shies away from that because what it doesn't want is to have you know as i say i mean you know colin firth isn't really the lead character technically but you know in in a lot of senses he is the lead in the film and it doesn't want our hero to have done that uh, if it's presented as horrific but it's got its own get out clause because the next thing that happens after that scene 
is that he's murdered. So actually, you could present it as a horrific act that he himself is, while he was under, you know, a kind of control, um, not exactly a control, but, you know, the, the impulse thing, um, he is in a way responsible for because he is this person who can do this. Mm. So you could watch the character that you've liked for the entirety of this film suddenly murder all of these people in a horrific way and find it horrific and appalling and have it be presented as a terrible thing that shouldn't be happening because he's going to suffer for it moments later so it is a scene while it doesn't play out in the same way because I don't think it has any of the lead characters involved the scene of oh we're testing this out at a church comes from the comic I think in the comic it's it's just I think it's a wedding maybe Um, but either way it's a horrific scene where lots of people all brutally murder one another um, you know, it is the test run for 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 the device. You know, the the the, the plan. It's presented as a as a horrific thing that happens. It's it's not presented as a here's how good our hero is at killing people. Uh, there is a moment that really bugs me where it it seems to be that it wears off. That we go to Colin First Face and and he seems to snap out of it and realise what's yeah. going on. Yeah, it's a very odd moment. And then he carries on doing it for another minute and a half or however long it is. It's very strange. And I, it was like, if I can't tell what his take on his, this is, if I can't tell whether he's now doing it just to fight his way out of the building because they're called, coming after him, whereas before he was doing it even though he didn't want to particularly, it feels like that's what they're trying to do, that he snaps out of it and then because people are still being mind-zapped and because they're still coming at him, he now has to to survive. He has to kill them. He Again, has to fight them off. But the fact that, that, the fact that that's not clear, I think yeah. it's compounded because Matthew Vaughan is such a confident and deliberate filmmaker that when there is stuff that is... That isn't immediately clear what the intention is, especially in a film that has these kind of issues at its centre. It's it's really unsettling, and it it I I, also... I I just can't get a handle on that scene. And and yeah, the the fact that some of it's kind of POV, there is some uh, it feels almost video gamey at points. I do I, I do feel, I felt like the film at some points was riffing on um, like the old kind of golden eye. Because it should huh. because it, because they have the um, because they have the cameras in their glasses that lends that aesthetic mm. and um, especially for when Eggsy is running down the corridors in the villain's base at the end and we get the POV stuff that felt very Goldeneye video. It, there's game a lot that's very video game yeah. throughout. But and, it, and again that doesn't that for me the video game aesthetic first person shoot, shooting in that church scene again is a weird. Like, are you trying to are you trying to put the audience, you know, are you trying to make it kind of voyeuristic? Are you trying to put them like right into the center of the horrificness, or, or mean, is it is it a distancing device that it's a that is video gameish? It you can argue that it's it it puts you in the body of in it, and actually it does do this. I mean, if you want to talk about how POV works, it literally traps you in a body but then forces you to look where they tell you to look, which is actually how this hypnotic thing works, right? Mm. So there's an argument that that's that going into POV, although my memory of it is that it doesn't go into POV that much. It mostly lingers around him. I think um, it's just a couple of... It's when Eggsy is watching, like when we cut back to... Oh, Eggsy yes, we're we watching from back. his camera. Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Mm. But, but again, I think because it feels video gamey to me, that has the opposite effect. 
Well, the, the thing is, because they've built it on the premise of, yeah, but aren't these kind of the people that you'd want to see hacked up and shot? Because yes. look how mm. awful they are. When you put that layer on top of it, and actually, again, if you want to talk about bravado, if you want to talk about a film that says it's willing to go to places you wouldn't normally dare go in movies like this. Well, it literally exonerates itself from killing all of those people by establishing them as the worst kinds of people beforehand. Seb, you're saying that's a change from the comic in that it's a wedding. Well, they change it because you can't really take the scene from the comic and drop it into the middle of the film. Or you could, but it would be a lot shorter. And Because it doesn't have our agent character doing it. It just has these people fighting and ah, killing okay. each other. Right, right. Now, you could still put it in there. It would just have to be a shorter scene. But... Um, if you do put it in there, then the, the whole point is the villain has killed these people and they're perfectly nice, ordinary people who were having a nice wedding and then this terrible thing happened. Because the film wants to make it into an action sequence where the hero is doing it, yeah. it feels the need to make the people horrible so that, as we've said, you cheer it on. And really, it would it doesn't need to do that. And this is, this is kind of what I was saying before, because it can... You know, they could be innocent people, and the whole point is you could have this horrible moment where Colin Firth's training and everything about him that makes him a good agent has suddenly meant that he is able to kill a load of innocent people as soon as he gets basically commanded to. Um, but you don't need to worry about the fact that you've done that to your hero because the next act is that you're killing him. So it's you, you know, you've you, you've sort of he, yeah. he gets punished in a sense for that. He never has to live with um, it. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. But instead, it's, oh, no, they're the kind of people you'd want to see killed anyway. So, you know, it means that actually, aside from the poor buggers who are um, run over by the bus in London and to and Colin Firth himself, um, nobody good really, you know, no, nobody who you would worry about gets killed in this. <laughs> it's just the baddies. It's a very interesting point. You're right. There is a... There is, a, there is an inherent thing of of taking away the the scene's nature as a bad thing to happen. This is a terrible thing. This is a this is a disaster. This is supposed to leave us at a really low point. But actually mm. the sequence says, I mean, look at the cool stuff we can do and these people kind of have it coming. And it also it it actually well yeah, it, it kind of means that actually what the villain has done is a good thing. And it also sort of makes you go, well if the villain is going to cut there's there's probably other people like this in the world. Yeah. So if some of them got killed when the villain does his full version of the plan, that's probably not so bad a thing either. Which yeah, takes and, then, and then the fact <laughs> that when we are cutting to those scenes at the end, we are kind of cutting to the to the, you know, the working class masses. Bootly. I mean, that's that's the thing as well. The film, if it was doing a Bond film, Eggsy would get there just in time, save the day, and the device wouldn't get set off. But again, because the mm. film wants to be kind of like, ooh, and edgy, the the device does get set off, and we have to watch the, oh God, the just horrendously misjudged scene, I think, of Eggsy's mum trying to stab her way through the door. And I see, I I think that's I mean, it's unsettling, and Joe was really unsettled by it, but this is what happens when you have a child that's not of a dissimilar age yeah, to, the, to the child in that. But um, that was unsettling, definitely, and difficult to watch, but I think in a good way. That that I was the was unsettling, <laughs> this is how horrible the plan is moment that the other scene should have been. Yes, that's you know? what it is. That's what it is. You needed to have proved it that bit sooner. Because mm. I always found the clash between the, the stabbing through the bathroom door and Eggsy running through an Austin yes, Powers that's, version that's of a villain's base 
too incongruous. And of course, the, I'm sure the argument is, yeah, isn't it brilliantly incongruous? I don't know if it is brilliantly. I just know that it is. And I feel jarred and jarred rather than cheering on the hero as he tries to prevent this from happening. And again, I think the way that it has depicted the the kind of characters in that council estate prior to that in the film undercuts this as now wanting to treat it like this uh, really serious moment where there's a mum about to murder a child. Yeah. Well, th- you've, you've presented mm. them all as, you know, as 2D characters anyway. And it comes straight after. Now, admittedly, I think one of the film's masterstrokes, which is the head-exploding sequence which is completely cartoonish and ridiculous, but with... But it's fun. Yeah, it is fun, <laughs> and with... Um, what's the Again, what's the song? Casey and the Sunshine Band, Give It Up, mm. playing in the background every time he puts his hand back on it and, and the, the head's exploding. Is that to Elgar, I think? And It's, it, yeah, yeah. All of that stuff with Sam Jackson in the bass at the end, I think it is fun, and I think Eggsy running through there with... Mark Strong on the headset going, ah, oh, that's fucking spectacular. That's all great, and that's that's really fun. But again, it's weird. It's weird because you're watching the film going, hey, look at all these one percenters getting their heads exploded. How funny <laughs> is this? It's all the powerful people who run your lives. And you're going, okay, that might be quite funny if... Again, I wasn't quite, you know, if I was a little bit more on board with the politics of your film, if if you hadn't done something as overtly political as having Mm. Barack Obama, one of those heads in those rooms, it's, it it comes across to me as a film Mm. with an agenda and not one I'm particularly comfortable with, even though I think the execution of that sequence is fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for unfortunate happenstance over, over, deliberate intent because that would have been whatever president was in power at the time and Samuel L. Jackson got cast in a part that wasn't written black the problem is the cumulative effect of these all things and you are responsible for the cumulative effect is you can't really trust black people when they've got too much power or money (laughs) But also, there's, there's no reason for... You know, th- this film does not exist in the real world. No. There, there is no reason to have the president be Barack Obama because Barack Obama was president at the time. Because, OK, so you get the moment of recognition when it's obviously the back of his head. But equally, he's in the White yeah, House. Yeah, they pull out and reveal like, the whole White House. It's not yeah, unclear what it's, role it's he's got. It's a man in the White House, so it could just be a generic president. It doesn't actually have to be Obama. <laughs> Isn't it the case that the movie sort of doesn't think you can trust anybody? Like it doesn't. It doesn't think that the estate that that Eggsy lives on is full of decent people. Uh. It doesn't think that the bartender will will uh, the guy the guy the guy who owns the pub will step in if trouble kicks off in the pub. Yeah, there's, there's a real kind of. We don't more, even we don't even trust the Kingsman organisation. Yeah, it's actually pretty nihilistic. It's having a lot of fun at saying everybody's awful and everything's dreadful and it's not that's part of this this general scope of of action movies and mainstream movies at the moment that i i do think things like batman v superman also fit into of just kind of going i mean everyone's awful so we're just gonna have to make the best of it there's kind of not much hope to that and it doesn't it makes me not enjoy films it has that you've, it has actually reminded me as well. The sequence where Michael Caine is revealed to be, you know, kind of mm-hmm. in with Samuel Jackson's scheme. Um, 
when he is kind of when he realizes he's, he's been poisoned and he goes ah oh, you fucking <laughs> and he suddenly turns into Michael Caine again mm-hmm. and for me that's a really interesting moment given that you've had Michael Caine as this posh M figure mm. the whole way through the film to suddenly kind of hint that oh he's is is he a little bit like Eggsy as well is he from the working class background yeah. is he but it's it's so difficult to grapple with that in relation well, to it's... everything else the <laughs> yeah. film has said and done about that character and about the Kingsman organisation that it just again it's one of those things that I'm like did the film mean to let Michael Caine revert <laughs> back to his accent there or did it just think that's cool I, it's funny actually because yeah because I because I took that moment initially and it's only now that I've thought about it that I realised that it's more difficult like if you've cast Michael Caine in a role like that where the character is someone who's, you know, the head of this organisation where everyone is incredibly snobby and well-spoken, to suddenly discover right at the end that actually, secretly, he himself was from a a Michael Caine-ish background and really has that accent and has, you know, has has trained it out of himself and, you know, is, is pretending to everyone that he wasn't from that background... That's that in itself is great, and you know it's it's a perfect thing to do with an actor like Michael Caine. Like Michael Caine is like the perfect actor to put in that role and do that. So it could be a fantastic moment where they tear apart what you thought about King the Kingsman organization in the first place, and that actually it isn't this you know proud you know posh noble organization that it thought it was. But there are two problems. One is the fact that the film passes no comment on the moment whatsoever and doesn't bring it up mm. again. And two is the fact that Michael Caine is the villain. So what it's actually saying mm-hmm. is the bloke who turns mm-hmm. out to be the baddie is the other one who's from the working class background. Well, and if if we're arguing that Samuel L. Jackson had something to fight against because of his list, you know, if that's if he's positing that he's a, a self-made tech millionaire who came from fel- relatively ordinary stock, it's also <laughs> don't trust people yeah. who've worked their way up. Now, yeah. if you're going to finish the movie with and now Eggsy's part of the Kingsman too, <laughs> well, no, hang on, that means... Oh Jesus! He's as bad as everyone else. Yeah. Although I, I, I will just say as well, and because you mentioned it briefly before, when it comes to like you know not trusting whether someone's going to turn out to be the villain, I did enjoy that Mark Strong was completely a good guy for the yeah. entire film because I did spend much of the first hour or so going. So when are they going to actually reveal that Mark Strong's the baddie? Because you know, Mark, it's Mark Strong. He always plays the baddie, and I quite liked Mark Strong getting to play um, a, a, a nice Alfred slash Q. With a admittedly not very good Scottish accent, but I think he's you know, fantastic. I, I like Mark Strong. Oh yeah, I mean, I I really like him a lot, and I really liked his character and the way he. Other than some glitches with the accent, the way he played that character throughout. I, was a lot I thought fun. he found a yeah, I agree. I think he found an awful lot of of likable affability in a movie that's actually quite lacking for that. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I do. It's very interesting. This this charging around corridors, killing people, stuff that Eggsy's doing in the final section. Where he's doing it with an umbrella, even though surely a machine gun would be better. Yeah. Um, he picks the disguise weapons, and it's like you do. There's no undercover left. We're done with the undercover stuff. But yeah. sure, whatever. And he goes through the same corridor over and over again in a very, very Tom Baker Doctor Who-y kind of way. Again, but, I think it's. I think it's the GoldenEye video game. I think it's that's <laughs> what it is. But why is it so hugely overlit? 
Like, why are those corridors so floodlit with white light? The 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 closest comparison, there isn't a Bond movie that looks like that. Bond movies work really, really hard to hide those kind of. I mean, I know it's a fake volcano, so we'll do our bit. We'll do it in low light, and we'll hide the corners, and we'll do a lot of shadow, and we'll we'll do it. If you're going to be a Bond movie. Why draw the line out? Yeah, but aren't those sets looking like sets? It's strange because I think sometimes the production design is good. All the stuff in the in the tailor's shop, I quite yeah. like. But that genuinely awful elevator the, with the brick wall composited behind them as they go down. Oh, uh, yeah. The, I mean, generally, the digital effects on this don't look very good to me. But that one it, in particular is so weird. It is funny, though. I think a lot of the stuff that we've come back to in this discussion, and we'll probably have to draw it to a close shortly, but a lot of the stuff we're coming back to, I feel, is that, like, yeah, the, the, the film... it You sense these ideas, but you sense ideas clashing against other ideas. And uh, going back to what I said at the start, kind of not feeling that it executes any particular strand badly... But none of them fantastically, and as a result, they don't—they don't coalesce together into something that really works as a movie. And there are so many of these things that kind of do contradict each other, and so many of these, like you said, Andrew, little things that kind of—they all add up to say something that maybe the film didn't intend to say. I don't think Kingsman knows what its central question is. It definitely isn't. What if there really were James Bond-like agents in the no, world? No, it definitely isn't that. It isn't, could a working class person become a James Bond agent? Because all it says over and over again is, well, obviously. Like, there's no com- complex question attached to the I don't know. I honestly feel like it's, it's, only, it's only kind of question like that is, what if Matthew Vaughan and Mark Miller made a Roger, Bo- Roger Moore Bond? Yes. Yeah. But we're also saddled by it not being Bond and having a different concept at the middle and it being an origin story. and It's just so I, confused. There's a really good point about that thing of how it's My Fair Lady at one point and how somebody else is doing a Bond movie at the same time because those two threads really fail to interact all the way through the film until the last the last act. That it's trying to be lots of different films, that it's trying sometimes to be a parody, that it's trying sometimes to be actually Bond, but also that it's trying to be other genres as well, that it's trying to be... Pygmalion and that it's trying to be I don't know, this kind of satire of the rich or I don't know, it it just seems to keep aiming at different targets all the time without a very clear sense of what it's really after doing Having having said that I do think, and I'm, I mean I, I hate this argument but I'm willing to make it given that we've just spent you know, the best part of two hours dissecting this movie I do think it is the kind of movie that if you turn your brain off and don't engage uh-huh. with the class politics and the gender politics and the why is it doing My Fair Lady and Bond at the same time, I do think it's enough surface level fun that, you know, until I really thought about the movie, I didn't dislike it. I didn't have that many problems watching it in the cinema until I kind of went, but why didn't it really work for me? I knew it didn't, I yeah. knew it didn't work for me. Yeah. But I didn't hate it. And I think, again, I think that does come back to Matthew Vaughan being so confident. And, the, you know, you, you you have Mark Miller and you have Jane Goldman, you have Matthew Vaughan, who all have a track record at making good, confident, funny, action-filled movies. Um, and, yes, yeah, surface level, 
It's quite good. It's quite good fun to watch. It's like I say, those shock moments definitely work on a on an opening watch, even if you're just kind of sat open mouth kind of shaking your head going, What a bizarre decision. Why is that happening? But it does it does kind of contribute to a, a solid two hours of like interesting passable movie. It just doesn't hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. And when it hits a really good one, when it hits Eggsy stealing the car and disappearing off into the distance and the shot holding and then him being chased back into oh, frame yes. by a police car. Oh, that's a great scene. Isn't that that's a yeah, beautifully that's a really good scene. Every so often it'll hit something <clears throat> that good and you kinda go, Oh my god, you can actually do that. And, and then, then the it doesn't gag, the gag in the trailer with Eggsy saying, Oh, my fair lady. Like that's Yes. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. And there's quite a few of those and just Colin Firth. I like, I like it dropping the line from from Trading Places as well. Having referenced Trading <laughs> yes. Places, the the feeling good line. Although it's only just struck me as well that um, uh, Samuel Jackson's character is called Valentine. Of course. Huh? <laughs> and yeah, there is. It's just I think uh, the aspects of this film that don't work are so much more interesting than the ones that mm-hmm. do. And it's kind of it's because you kind of take for granted that Matthew Vaughan is going to have that kind of stuff in his movie. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I kind of enjoyed myself watching for this this for the first time. I I had a lot. I mean, I, you know, I'm I I don't think I've disagreed with with any of the criticisms, and I've added plenty myself. But just on a surface level, I did have an enjoyable time watching the film for almost the entirety of its running time. I mean, it. I mean, maybe the fact that I've been so willing to criticise it um, has something to do with how soured I was on it. By the very end of it, which we should though, talk about, which is we we've skirted yeah. around, but we should probably talk about, you know, maybe not in too much time because yeah, yeah. we've been going for ages. But in a bit of detail, we should discuss why this is such a problem. Yeah, so let's explain this sequence to anyone who hasn't seen the film. Um, Eggsy is in the base, kind of midway through his mission, uh, finds these prison cells, uh, opens the kind of the flap in the cell and sees this blonde Swedish princess in there who we've met earlier in the film. And she says to him, you know, are you going to save me? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to try to. And she says... He says something like, you know, oh, if I save you, will you give me a kiss? And she's like, oh, I'll give you more than a kiss if you save me. And then he's like, then something happens and then he's like, oh, I've got to go and save the world. And then she says... We can do it in the asshole. Yeah. And then Eggsy walks away, saves the day... And I actually think Taron Egerton really sells this. The kind of the little grin on his face, the swagger, and you're going, this was the moment watching the film I was like, no, that's not what the film's doing here, is it? And he picks up a champagne bottle and he kind of is swaggering back to the cell and he gets Mark Strong to open the cell door for him. And then we cut back to Eggsy POV from the camera and we see him with the princess looking down at her bare bottom clearly about to engage in some anal sex <laughs> which is i think what they're trying to do is riff on the pun filled end the keeping the british end up style oh, of let, ending let me give you because i've got this lovely matthew vaughan quote <laughs> come on um, here's where andrew uh, at the end of Moonraker, he's floating around in space on Dr. Goodhead, and they say Bond is attempting re-entry. And the spy who loved me, he says he's keeping the British end up. The innuendo is pretty strong and always comes from the men. I just thought it would be great to turn it on its head by having the woman say it. I actually think it's empowering. Some bloody feminists are accusing me of being a misogynist. I'm like, it couldn't be further from the truth. 
It's a celebration of women and the woman being empowered in a weird way, in my mind, which will cause a big argument again, I'm sure. It's meant to be tongue-in-cheek and crazy. <laughs> All of that is fine if you're just talking about the line of dialogue. Yeah. Which, whether it's to your taste or not, I mean, I actually found that quite funny, and I quite, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's her prerogative to say that. He doesn't say, "Will you let me do this if I save the world?" She says that, and offers it. So, in the sense that Matthew Vaughan is talking about, you know, she has control of that situation and is choosing that that is what she will say and do. Although, and although imp- while you might think it's a bit crude, I, I was mildly amused by it, and I think it works. Everything that Matthew Vaughan says there is completely undercut by the arse shot, <laughs> which is just the most ridiculous closing shot of it. I know you've got the, the but, credit sequence the, with the, the funny, but it's just the funny part of that has already happened. The fact, the slow yeah. realization of what Eggsy is doing. That is the funny part. We don't need the See, bit I, where Mark Strong unlocks the door for him. We, well, that's the thing. It's funnier if if he's if he's he's got that swagger, and it's like this is the moment where I truly become James Bond because I get to go and Roger the girl at yeah. the end. And he's got the smirk on his face, and he's got the champagne bottle. You can end it on a great gag if the door is locked and they don't know how to open it because they've just killed the villain. Mm. That's a that's a good gag to end it on, and that's exactly where I assumed it was going. And then instead, it it doesn't. <laughs> the 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 argument seems to be, and I, and the um, again the Hulk piece seems to aim in this direction. That what it's saying is no, but literally this is what Bond films do. Like we don't, they don't show it because they've got rating certificates and they've got you know whatever and they they nice it up. But this is what happens at the end of a Bond film. And I guess my thing is. I don't know who thinks it's clever to say, yeah, like, it's mm. that's how Bond films end. It's like the guy who sits next to you and says, I, I, I bet he's going to sleep with her at the end of the movie. Well, yeah, but so? And, I, I well, it's like, you, you know, you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't watch a film about, like, a, a family and their kids and go, ah, well, they don't show it on screen, but, you know, that couple had sex with each other in order to produce <laughs> right. those children, so we should probably show that. It's like, yeah, we know it's a thing that happens. It doesn't mean that not showing it is and, and again, a, a weird thing. The, the funny <laughs> part of that is Eggsy picking up the champagne, like, that. literally the first thing he thinks is... I, it's not, I've just saved the world. It's not, I wonder if my mum's okay. It's, I get to have sex with a Swedish princess. And I will. the look on his face, that is the joke. But again, for the, for, the, for the Matthew Vaughan quote that Andrew just read out, to have any kind of validity, you have to have a film that has other female characters who have personalities. Or that Swedish princess has to have had more than just the one scene where she speaks two lines yeah. earlier in the film. She has to be a proper character for her to have agency in that moment. Her line is very funny. Her line is really funny. And they find the perfect weird accent, you know, bonkers movie Swedish mm. accent to deliver yeah. it in. But it's not a joke that Austin Powers couldn't have done. No. It's not mm. so outlandishly, wow, look at you transgressing the line of, you know. Well, guys, I think we're going to probably have to draw our... Uh, discussion of this movie to a close um, just before you do uh, comic book recommendations and Andrew I believe you have one as well um, I'd just like to make a movie recommendation and it's not so much a recommendation just a, more of a thing a movie I think is a fantastic counterpoint to this also stars Mark Strong 
also about secret British secret agents, also kind of a comedy deconstruction. Um, and that's Grimsby, which was released earlier this year, which I think has um, a, a whole load of problems and kind of approaches this British agent stuff and is fundamentally at its core about class. And it's crude and it's shocking and it does a lot of things that Kingsman does. And in a, in a way, I think it's a lot smaller, a lot less ambitious film that Kingsman is. And it certainly doesn't have the swagger that Matthew Vaughan brings to things. But it does have Mark Strong, and it does have, I think, a coherent message about class at its core. And it does it probably in a more Austin Powers-y kind of absurd way than Kingsman does. But I'm not willing to go out and say it's a good film, but I think it's a very interesting counterpoint to Kingsman. So, um, yeah, I'd recommend you watch Grimsby if you are kind of still grappling with this movie. Um, But guys, what are your comic book recommendations based on Kingsman? Oh, well, this is, I'm afraid this is a ridiculously predictable and obvious suggestion, but I'm going to suggest the current James Bond run by Warren Ellis, which is Varga, it's called. It's the, and that story's just finished. I think they're, they're into the next story now. Um, but that rounded off very pleasantly and violently. And it actually does, it's got this gorgeous art, which is by Jason Masters, um, where they, they do things like they show Bond hacking his way down through extra through through henchmen down a corridor and you see all the stages of it in the one frame but they also do these kind of little um sort of csi cutaways to close up sort of like oh well that bullet would have shattered through his brain and his nose and his mouth all at the same time um so it does that slightly ultra violency thing um in combination with with treating james bond as this guy they're very in love with a sort of 60s version of 007 uh, and the rules and regulations of, of things that Fleming used to do that actually the, the movies never really bothered with. So things like Bond gets really pissy about the fact he's not allowed to carry a gun in the UK <laughs> because the whole point of his agency, the whole point of MI6 is they only operate abroad. So he has to go somewhere and then be given his gun, and he's whinging about it in the canteen at MI6. I love that stuff. It's a really nice wrinkle that not enough people kind of zero in on. So, uh, yeah, the first run, that Varga is the first run, and it's delicious. I loved it. Fantastic. Um, Seb, what have you got for me? Now, obviously, often as well, we would recommend the comic that the um, film is based on. And I see no reason not to recommend The Secret Service um, because it's a fairly enjoyable read if you want to get hold of that. But I'm not going to make it the compulsory read for this week. So if you have time, do... Um, but I wanted mm-hmm. to, because I knew I was going to already talk about the comic in the main section, I wanted to be able to discuss something in the recommendation. And I can't believe that I've actually managed to find an opportunity to recommend this comic because I wasn't sure if we'd ever get to fit it in anywhere. Uh, I would like you to read the first volume of Casanova by Matt Fraction and Gabriel Barr because it is just one of the most incredible um comics achievements of the last 20 years or so it's mental it's utterly utterly mental there's actually a current vo- it, it it suffered a lot of delays um and and sort of hiatuses in publication but it it's it's fifth i think volume is in the process of coming out at the moment it hasn't been as good since the first two volumes but the first two volumes are just astonishing it's like you like matt fraction's hawkeye right Love my fractions. Imagine that turned up to 11 
um, around a spy story. So it's basically it's about a guy called Casanova Quinn who is a freelance thief. Um, and espionage artists they call him on Wikipedia um, his father runs an organisation called Empire um, every organisation in the book by the way um, it, their name is an acronym um, so like every organisation is, is an acronym in capital letters so Empire is E-M-P-I-R-E and you usually don't find out what they stand for um, his father runs that organisation and his sister is their best agent and he's kind of like the black sheep of the family, he's a sort of selfish arsehole um, he gets transported to a parallel universe where his sister is the bad guy and the version of him in this parallel universe who is dead was the good guy and he takes his other self's place and that just sparks off some of the most ridiculous freewheeling, uh, like so hard to keep up with, but just so ideas driven comics. And like, there's seven issues in the first volume, which makes it sound quite long, but they're all quite short issues. Um, but they pack so much in. I think the issues are only like maybe 14 pages or so long in the first volume. But it's just like it just goes along at such a pace, and it's like the reputation that Matt Fraction already had in comics by the time he came to do Hawkeye is almost entirely based on on Casanova. Um, it's drawn actually the um, they alternate arcs. There's two Brazilian brothers called Gabriel Barr and Fabio Moon who are incredible artists, and they actually alternate between volumes. So the first volume is drawn by Gabriel Barr, and I've just realised you have read something that he's drawn because um, Gabriel Barr's yeah, I was going to say his Umbrella Academy. It's the artist from Umbrella. Academy. Ah, yes. Um, so yeah. it's just great. Okay, well, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. And this is um, all riffing on Kingsman because obviously Matthew Vaughan and Mark Miller have collaborated on a number of occasions now. And I want you to imagine Mark Miller and Matthew Vaughan having a big falling out. And they both kind of swear to never work with each other again. But Matthew Vaughan still wants to make movies based on comic books, and Mark Miller still wants his comic books to be made into movies. So, which filmmaker would you pair up with Mark Miller moving forward, and vice versa for Matthew Vaughan, which comic book writer would you pair him up with? Um, you can do either one or both of these, whichever whichever you fancy. And um, Andrew, I'll come to you first. Alright, I've got an answer for both. Uh, the Matthew Vaughan answer of what comic book person to team him up with can i say jonathan ross <laughs> because if america's got powers and turf plus working with jane goldman i think they'll get on <laughs> so i'm just cheating my way through that one but actually mark, <laughs> the answer for mark miller is i think i think he needs paul verhoeven uh, i i think what you need to do is find a a, a, a a director who looks at starship troopers the book and says I mean, if it was a piss take, <laughs> I think that's a good way to deal with with some of the the more grubby and unpleasant excesses of Miller's written work. I I like both of those answers an awful lot. Seb, you've got a job <laughs> on your hands. Here. Um, okay, so my my Matthew Vaughan choice uh, has already been mentioned on the podcast today. It's Warren Ellis. Um, who already has a link with Mark Miller because um, Warren Ellis wrote the first volume of The Authority, which was a kind of um, superheroes as as sort of real people thing before that was a thing. 
um, from Wildstorm in the early 2000s. Um, Warren Ellis is another writer who's very good at idea-driven comics um, with the added bonus that he's he's not Mark Miller. He's actually he's a better writer than Miller. He writes better characters. Um, he's not you know thematically and, and often politically awful. Um, so it'd just be nice to see. Like if you consider that Vaughan and Goldman like can elevate not so great source material, then what they would do with something like um, and again I'll just I'll rattle off a couple of high concepts uh, Ministry of Space which is alternate history where um, the British developed um, atomic space technology in like the 1950s and established an empire um, or Planetary which I can't really describe because it's a bit complicated but is an amazing series about the people who chart the secret history of, of fiction in the world uh, or Global Frequency which is a network of kind of intelligence agents all linked via like mobile technology that sort of they don't know each other but they just get called in to help out like around the world if a given situation needs them um, just there's loads of Warren Ellis stuff that would just make great films and I think Matthew Vaughan would suit them really well uh, for a filmmaker to work with Mark Miller well, you know how I have this problem that I often don't like Mark Miller comics but then I feel bad about the fact that I kind of quite enjoy the films um, let's get Zack Snyder to do Mark Miller's films because then we won't have that problem anymore <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think obviously you've you've taken the um, you've both taken one side of this equation more seriously <laughs> than the other, and um, as a result, I think I kind of I kind of have to you know make this a tie. I'm going to go with Warren Ellis for Seb, and I'm going to go with Paul Verhoeven for um, for Andrew. So That's reasonable. The pitch is a tie this week, but I mean, the, the, <laughs> both of those are as as good an answers as I could have hoped to have got. Um, but that's it for this week's show. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a fascinating Kingsman discussion. Do you want to let the listeners know where they can find more of your work online? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can uh, go to andrewellard.com, which has links to uh, my Twitter account, which is at ellardent, ellardent. Um, it's also my Storifier, which has all the Tweet Notes archives, which has loads of mainstream movies and... Uh, Doctor Who are plenty since Stephen Moffat took over. Um, and then, you know, watch the stuff I work on on telly. Thanks. <laughs> I, hear, I, hear, I hear they're doing some new Red Dwarf. I haven't heard much about it, but apparently that's on the way this year. <laughs> oh, highly, highly recommended. Highly recommended. September, I hear, Andrew. It's official now. We're allowed to <laughs> yeah. say it, aren't we? Yes. That's, actually, that's actually true. No, I mean, I am desperate for people to see this new series of Red Dwarf. I mean, Seb's seen some recorded, I think. Um, it's it's looking really really good. It has such an old school feel to it. I mean, the scripts were coming in, and it was it was very easy to be tantalised and thrilled by them. But it just it's come it's all come out so gloriously well. I'm I'm very excited about it. Yeah, absolutely can't wait for more Red Dwarf. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice, and head over to Patreon where you can support us at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com and get in touch on Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Son of Cool.
You and I, we fight for the same cause, the protection of this world. From this day forward, you can count me in as your ally. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Thor. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.